Wits and Cures with Lindy Burns, lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Dr Steve Allen. Wits and Cures has returned for another year here in 2018 and I'm very pleased to say that Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea is back. Hello, Bill. Hi, Lindy. Good to be back. Nice to see you. Uh, You did walk in and say this is Groundhog Day. (laughs) Well, well, I thought I was late. I got here at three minutes to eight, but here it is. It's 14 past eight. Yeah. I thought Wits and Cures went from eight till nine, Steve. Not when you complain about it. The minute you stop complaining about it, I'll start to play shorter songs. Um, But it's going to speak more quickly. Steve Allen is a uh, Melbourne psychiatrist. Hi. G'day, Lindy. How are you? I'm good. Nice do, you, do you want to complain about anything as yeah, we keep up here? You don't complain. You're, you're <laughs> just a subservient doctor. You just go along. You don't object. You've got no sense of adversarial combat. Like you know I how have. good a psychiatrist I am. Pretty much every show I say to Bill, now, Bill, don't start the show whining. <laughs> Maybe say something funny, be upbeat, be cheerful, and he always comes in and complains. See, what's funny about that, too, is that you've been sitting in the studio, you know, during the song a little bit during the news, and you have completely Did you see me looking at the clock? Completely. I did see that, but you always do that, so I didn't care. I just, as I said, I played my longest song and my favourite from well, the list. It's a good song, so together. I don't think we lost Thank any you. listeners. Thank I mean, you. normally we'd lose listeners because they think we love Bill and Steve, but we're not going to wait 14 minutes. That's true. But they got a lovely song from Patty. Tonight we're going to be joined by Professor Noel Woodford, who's the director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine in Melbourne. Yeah, if you do remember Dr. Quincy, MD, then you'll know what we're talking about. I did get a lovely text that says, my main memory of Quincy starring the great Jack Klugman was the intro where he kept panning back to a close-up of Quincy examining a body, only to then pan back to see that it was a blonde in a bikini on a yacht. Seriously, you would never put that on television now. You know, my favourite bit about the show, though, was that he lived on a boat. And I dreamed of growing up and being a doctor who lives on a boat. I just thought that would be so good. I've not achieved, well, really either. I'm not much of a doctor and I don't live on a boat. If you became homeless, you could go down and live on a, you know, rotting hulk in the Yarra. You could crawl in there and... One really? of your old ones. We can come ones. and visit you. Yeah, if you're you. being a lawyer, you'd have a whole lot of old spare ones just but, floating around. And what about witless silence? I mean, we, oh, sorry, silent witness. We should be talking about silent witness. Someone we? mentioned that to me, saying that that was their experience of of seeing, you know, medical examiners, as they call it in the states, mm. Uh, mm. in on television. So I've, I've not I've not seen silent witness, but. Apparently, it's they get more out common. of the lab. I bet Noel never gets out of the lab. We're going to ask him in a few, uh, in about twenty minutes. Actually, in about fourteen minutes, <laughs> if I get that correct. First up, though, we're talking talking about family estrangement. Estrangement is such an old fashioned word. I love the word estrangement. I don't like what it is, but I think it's such a terrifically good word. Because we, I think we like to think that blood is always thicker than water, and that families sort of stick together through thick and thin, and all of the cliches you can come up with. But I, there is a, there is an incidence. Just to harken back to my last conversation, uh, there's an incident of estrangement um, in my family, mm. uh, my my wider family, not not the nuclear family, but my wider family. There there are elements of the family that are estranged from an, uh, from another element, and as a person who's kind of caught in the middle, that's pretty hard. Mm. But I I kind of understand it as well, and and but there's been a lot written about this and a lot of research, Steve, done as well yep. on it. So what does estrangement actually mean? Does it mean you don't talk to each other at all? Yeah, it's pretty much defined as one or more relatives in relatives intentionally choosing to end contact because of some ongoing problem. And like you, I've been, you know, it's because it's not something we it's not something I ever really think about, and it's not its not like you have a lecture in med school or psych training about estrangement, yet I'm amazed at how often it pops up. Does it and happen more often with mental health patients 
who are estranged in your practice? No. No, in fact, there's not a lot. There's surprisingly little literature. There's an Aussie expert and there's a couple of UX, US experts. There's a like a non-government organisation in the UK called Stand Alone that research it. It's not a massively researched area. And it's really only the last couple of years. Interestingly, though, we were triggered this one, Lindy, by an article that we saw in New York Times. And also SBS did a series on it last year, did a few shows on it. And it's it's surprisingly common. The research is anything from about 4% to 20%. So one in five to about, you know, whatever, one in 20-odd. And um, it's incredibly common. And, you know, I, these days I work in a cancer hospital, so I'm often seeing people who are uh, towards the end of life. And I'm amazed at how often one of the issues is that people say, I haven't spoken to my dad. My dad seems to be the commonest one or my son or my daughter. So it's a father. It's often fathers, but then that's the commonest, but there's any relationship it can be, can be estranged. I'm just amazed at how often it comes up. It really surprises me. And do people ever, uh, you know, in, in that end of life period, do, does, does that then often is it pushed aside and, and there's this, there's this, there's this keenness to, to, to put, Put, put all of those differences aside and and to re-establish the relationship, or do most people just you know, hang on to that um, that level of of antipathy towards each other right till the end? You know, re- there's no. Um clear answer to that. It really varies. Some people are estranged for a whole lot of good reasons and they have no intention of ever changing it. Sometimes it's for safety. Sometimes they're abused and they've got no intention of resolving the relationship. Other times it's um, people see it as a little bit of a misunderstanding or a series of events and they do want to resolve before they um, before they pass away. And the same in when there's no um, cancer or anything involved too. So the same comes out in the research. It's, not, it's, oft, it's just as likely to be something that's wanted by um, one of the people as something that's unwanted that they want to rectify. can lead to big legal problems, though. I was going to ask you this. It has mm. to lead to big legal problems, uh, particularly yes. when one party dies. Yeah, well, when you cut them out of the will, oh, too. Yes, yeah. Particularly cutting them out of the will. It's a very dangerous practice to do that unless you fully explain in your will why it is you're not leaving a bequest to a particular... Say it's a child, uh, why it is... Um, and, it, you know, the fact that you've got a duty to provide for people who depend on you and you can't just ignore them. And what you're opening up is that the risk that that will, will be challenged in the Supreme Court. The only place you can challenge wills is in the Supreme Court. Very expensive process. And, you know, to, to, um, to do that without a lot of care and a lot of advice is very dangerous. And you find you could find your estate being, you know, cut down by a huge amount because in legal fees because one of the uh, disaffected children takes the will to court and challenges it. But I'd imagine, too, it, it would work even in... It would not work, would happen in other... In, in, in sort of the opposite of that, where the estrangement is caused is by somebody saying, I'm leaving X amount to your brother because you've done better in life and he needs it more than you, or something like that. That that would then... And then the brothers are estranged. Yeah, or, yeah. or, or the person who's not receiving the half or the quarter or whatever mm. it is, the eighth, feels that they've been neglected or rejected by the parents and as yeah. a result they say, well, if you don't want to you know, treat me equally to the other children, I'm I'm off and mm. looking after myself. I'm, I'm going to be estranged from you. And there's siblings fighting after the death of yep. a parent who they might not be estranged from because they feel one sibling has behaved 
badly in the process of the death and often to do with the inheritance. It's one of the common listed causes of estrangement, along with things like disliking your um, relative's partner, addiction's a common cause, a sense of betrayal. They're, off, they're all up there as common but, reasons people estrange. But there are, there are what, three or four myths that, you know, Lindy mentioned, you know, there's this myth of blood's thicker than water, the families won't let estrangement happen, ultimately they'll all get back together again. But that's not what your figures bear out. Well, on... But one of, one of the myths, isn't it, that it all happens suddenly. Someone b- brings the wrong cake to a party. You know, you're told to bring a pavlova and you turn up with a fruitcake. That's one example that the researchers have cited. And the mother was so furious at the daughter for doing this because she'd made a pavlova and told her, don't bring a pavlova, I'm making one. And she's <laughs> turned up with a fruitcake so and they've had a massive falling out. Now, it wasn't just the pavlova and the fruitcake, was it? No. Normally, the typical pattern is an ongoing cycle of uh, estrangement and reconciliation and, you know, p- small, short periods. And then there's often a straw that breaks the camel's yeah, back. So often the people will talk about, we haven't spoken since the famous Pavlova incident of, of 1979, but the reality is there's normally a whole process that goes on. And so it's not normally sudden. It's normally, you know, it's been building up for a long time and then, and then it happens. But people do, I mean, the average time, depends on the relationship, but the average time of an estrangement, there's not, as I say, the research isn't super solid. It's not one of those typical topics but of the research that's out there average times about eight years for um that they are estranged yeah, for people stay estranged for mind you of course that's an impossible figure because you know some people might have an argument and not talk for a year others one month others 10 years others never again so there's no there's no clear pattern i should say the leading research on this is by uh, a, a woman called kylie aglias who's at the um, university of newcastle i might add um, ah, your hometown lindy yeah it's a big estrangement city yeah <laughs> But she's written the 2016 book on this called Family Estrangement, and that's the one that the New York Times has reported on. Right. Where, so she's actually been reported in America for the research that she's done. Okay, another myth. There's a clear reason that people become estranged. A cl- always a clear reason. Now, well, that's that a type, myth. Yeah, that's a bit of a myth. There's normally multiple factors, and when, they, and when they ask families and people who have suffered from estrangement, they normally there's overlapping reasons. It's normally a combination of a, um, a sense of being abused or poor parenting and disputes, a little bit of betrayal thrown in, then plus all the, the things that people often expect, like addictions, partner choices, stuff like that. But there's sometimes, we were talking before about the will business. Yeah, inheritance that, is a common one. But, but, it, but can, that... I, I think it well from what you're saying that won't necessarily if, if everything's been hunky dory and then that happens it, 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 it then you tend to you don't ask the question hang on a second where's this mm, come from exactly. but often it can be the straw that breaks the yep. camel's back because mm. it's sort of like well you know you've been behaving like this and then you've done that and now this is the last thing you've done and I'm out which mm. brings me to the question is it necessarily a bad thing is it necessarily a bad thing to have chosen or decided that you no longer want to stay, you know, having being forced to spend time with somebody that makes you feel really terrible well, about you, yourself. You can't choose your relatives. I mean, no. You so can, you can why... choose a partner in life, a spouse, and they're they're allowed to split. So if you can't choose your relative, why can't you choose not to spend time with them? Absolutely, it's it's quite interesting. There's this strong sense that we have that um, naturally that we need families for times of stress in our life, illness, difficulties, problems, and so that you know I think we allow our family much more leeway than we allow our friends. We're much more likely to dump our friends than we are our family. 
um, which is, you know, why we have this term estrangement that replies to estrangement that applies to relatives. But for a lot of people, there are a lot of people in the world who can be a bit toxic, and their relationships are toxic. And so, a lot of people who are estranged report that they are much happier and feel much healthier and safer since they've been estranged. And that's why I say they have no intention of reversing it. Um, it's not necessarily a bad thing at all. Others, though, do in the literature. There's some people who just say it gives them this great sense of loss that's ongoing yeah. and it plays on their mind. And I've seen that a lot with people. I've seen a lot of people, you know, in my clinical practice who report that they've been estranged. And, you know, when you ask them, they do, you know, they say, look, I think about it a lot. You know, I regularly think about should I do something? A couple of times I've picked up the phone, put it down. A couple of times I've thought about it, but how would I do it now? Who knows? And so, you know, they've got those, they've built barriers in their head and they'd like to. And then, of course, if big things happen, like, for example, you know, um, major illness, that often leads them to re-evaluate. It sounds like it will take some sort of major event to bring people back together if indeed they ever get back together. Because otherwise, I think the longer period, the longer the time goes on that you've not spoken, the harder it is to... To start that conversation. Absolutely. What about fixing it? What agencies in Australia are there to help people mend uh, estrangement situations? I mean, if you, okay, you can try and do it yourself, as you've just described, but there are professional organisations that will help. I mean, they, they're rooted in family law, of course. That's what yep. they're mainly used for. But I'm thinking about Relationships Australia. They do have a service for families, not just for separating couples. My word. Relationships Australia would help with this. So would pretty much any psychologist, um, especially anyone who's a couples therapist or a relationship therapist. So there's lots of different ways. And there's also uh, there's also this um, UK website. Um, what were they again? Standalone.org. Org.uk. Is that what they call it over there? Yeah, .org.uk. If you look up standalone, you'll find it very easily. They publish a guide and they give you they and they throw in tips and stuff. The usual the things you'd expect, I guess. Like they say reach out and don't expect it to occur straight away. Often takes multiple attempts. Try and communicate communicate clearly. Ironic. Oh really, yep. Steve? Yeah. <laughs> Communicate clearly. Try to communicate clearly and keep it simple is um is pretty obvious. Try not to rehash. Try just to say, look, we've had our differences, but I'd like to, you know, see if you're open to uh, trying to get past them. Yeah, it's interesting um, you talk about. I talked to, I had a big talk to my mum because um, it was on my mum's side of the family that the estrangement happened, and I was talking. She and I were talking about it, particularly when it first happened, and you know how sad we were, and you know how much we were, we felt stuck between the various parties. Um, and mum made a hilarious comment. She sort of looked at me. She said, I don't know why these people can't just sweep things under the carpet like we do. And it was such a lovely comment. We we laughed about it. But there's a bit of truth in that. That Because mm. we, no, we've had our differences over the years, mum and I. But we're both pretty good at going, yeah, it's, it's, we I'm still in a relationship with you. I'm just never going to talk about that again. And, yep. and that we just don't bring things up in, in conversation so we can maintain a relationship that's still pretty positive. Despite the fact that, you know, there would have been times probably years ago when I was younger that, you know, we could have become alienated from each other. Mm. But mm-hmm. but it's... It's, you it's know, a good point. Denial. It's, you know, denial, denial is, is not still, necessarily a bad it is thing. It's still the best defence every human uses on... You know, well, we use you, denial you, on a daily basis. You're compartmentalising it, aren't yep. you? And we put it out of our head. Mm. You know, this, this similar concept is saving face in a lot of Asian cultures. Yeah. You know, don't confront the problem. Put it to the side, pretend it didn't occur. It, you know, versions of that, and people talk about that sometimes in a stigmatizing way, which I'm, I don't quite get because it's clearly one of our strongest attributes as humans to deny, you know, all the potential problems in our yeah. life. Yeah, it's funny it's you talk about. I was talking to another often. friend of mine about about their Christmas, and they were saying that you know that he he got to the point where he 
he finally said a few home truths to one of his, I don't know if it was father or mother or brother, one of them, um, and, and kind of, you know, really got some things off his chest mm. and felt really good about it. And, you know, we're trying to clear the air here and everything. And the, and the general view in the family was, oh, so he's just had a bit to drink and moved on. Like nobody yeah. heard. No one's wanting to hear it. No mm. one's wanting. So sometimes what's, why even bother going there? And this time of year is a good time to have those discussions. Of yeah. Because people get together. They do. Give the Relationships Australia um, number that if you do think you need uh, help outside your own resources, um, Relationships Australia's website is uh, www.relationships.org.au and the number is 1300 364 And certainly they do a lot of counselling for separating couples, but they also have what they call a family dispute resolution process and they have experts who do it every day. And I think that sounds really handy. I've got a couple of calls from, uh, texts from a couple of people who are talking about what happened to them after a marriage breakdown, that the children would side with one mm. of of the couple, um, one side of the couple, and, and therefore the, the the remaining you know parent is left estranged from not, not just the partner that they're divorcing, but the children as well. That mm. children have made this choice, um, mm. and how you know how do you try and forge a relationship with that person? And are there, and there are experts that can help you go through mm. that. But the kids have to want to be a part of that, don't mm. they? Yeah, but there's still lots of tips. I've done this many times. There's lots of tips around divorce and relationship breakdowns where there's often a sense of betrayal, especially if one person's had an affair. Often the kids will feel betrayed as well. And there's a whole lot of um, ways you can deal with it and approach it and be sensitive and not lose your temper. And, and so there are, you know, there's a real path to overcoming estrangement in those circumstances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A final question from Susan. Does estrangement run in families? By no coincidence, my auntie has not spoken to my uncle for decades and now my dad doesn't speak to her and now I have a strained relationship with my sister. I thought that estrangement would be more common to what Steve's been saying. It's funny, isn't it? That that, maybe yeah. it's... When I read the research that said 4%, I thought to myself, no way, I think it's much more common. And I was adding it up in my head. And I think it probably does, in a sense, run in families for a couple of reasons. One, sometimes the families will take sides, and so it'll lead to multiple estrangements. And two, sometimes families have relationship styles that include lots of arguments and disputes, whereas other families are fantastic at sweeping under the carpet. (laughs) And so I suspect there would be an element of clustering, not necessarily like genetic running in family, but clusters that occur related to the um, ways different families relate to each other. And their personalities. Yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult, and this this may have prompted um, a few emotions for a number of people because it, it can it can be a very difficult subject, particularly if you've recently become or well, not even that. No, estrangement is estrangement is estrangement, no matter at what stage you're you're in it. Some of you may feel relieved that you're in that position. Others may be incredibly sad about it. Um, this is the lifeline number thirteen eleven fourteen. It's available for you in that crisis time or at a time that you just need someone to talk to and then perhaps start seeking out some of the professional um, uh, avenues that we have provided for you today. This is Ritz and Cures. My name is Lindy Burns together with Melbourne lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Dr Steve Ellen. In a few minutes, we'll be joined by Professor Noel Woodford, who's the director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine in Melbourne, a pretty extraordinary job. He'll tell you a little bit more about that. Ritz and Cures with Lindy Burns. This is Ritz and Cures. Good to have you along. And our special guest tonight is Professor Noel Woodford. Noel is the director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. What does it do? 
Well, it provides independent medical and scientific expertise to the justice system and it works very closely with the coroner's court. He leads a team of forensic pathologists in addition to specialists in paediatric pathology, radiology, odontology, anthropology and entomology. If you don't know what those things are, well, you're about to find out. He's also a pathologist by training, having trained in Melbourne and indeed in the UK and holds degrees in medical jurisprudence and law and is a professor at Monash University. But we're interested in what it's like to work with people who have died pretty much every single day. Hello, Noel. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Lindy. Nice to have you come in. So the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine... VIFM? What do you say? V-I-F-M? I tend to say V-I-F-M, but other people say VIFM. I'm happy with either. You're happy with either, because if we say that from now on, everybody will understand what we're saying. So how long have you been working there for a start? Um, I first went there in 1994, but uh, I started there again in 2000, worked in the UK for three and a half years, and then I've been back since about 2004. And what brought you back? Uh, My wife didn't like the weather. (laughs) (laughs) Let's blame her. But also a a job opportunity came up there and I was keen to come home. I really liked my time at the Institute and really wanted to work there as a pathologist. When people say, well, what does a pathologist do? Do you just, you know, talk about certain television shows? And um, and forensic pathology really means the application of that to the needs of the courts and the justice system. So apart from study of disease, it's also the interpretation of injuries and trying to reconstruct the events around a death. So I I mentioned in my introduction that the Institute uh, works with the justice system, providing expertise, medical expertise to it. Can you give us an example of what what sort of day-by-day activities are involved, though, in providing that sort of service? Yes. um, First of all, we're just around the corner here in Southbank, and what makes our place Fantastic, I think, is that um, in the one location there's the medical arm of the process and the legal arm, so we're also co-located with the Coroner's Court of Victoria. But going back to your question, what happens when somebody dies in certain circumstances? Well, whether or not they get referred to us um, depends on whether they fall under the auspices of the Coroner's Act. So the Coroner's Act really determines what deaths are reported to the coroner, and so they'd be deaths that are unexpected or unnatural, violent, accident or injury, deaths that occur in certain circumstances during medical procedures and also deaths that occur in care and custody. So So you um, mentioned accidents. So if if you can even clearly see how that person died, they would still get reported and you would have to still investigate that, even though you can see that that person's lost that limb and then blood loss occurred, etc. Well, they well still the, the cause might seem to be obvious at the outset, yeah. but clearly while we only have the body for a very brief period of time, we're trying to anticipate lots of questions that might come from lots of different sources down the track. Who's at fault? How did the person die? Might something that have could have happened... Um, an intervention, perhaps, by the people who attended the accident have saved their life. Did something happen that was wrong? Is that going to be an issue in court later on? So we're trying to anticipate all of those questions. Right. And that's why even if it was you know, clearly evident why the person died, let's say in a car accident when there's significant chest or head trauma, uh, there might be questions that um, need answering down the track that we're trying to anticipate. So. Um, um, The interesting thing about the Coroner's Act in 2008 was that it introduced this notion of preliminary examination, which is, I think, something that sets our place apart from anywhere else in the country, which is really almost a process of triage. So when the body is um, admitted into our care, a number of different steps are are gone through uh, so that we can then advise the coroner about whether or not we think an autopsy is necessary and whether or not we can provide a reasonable cause of death. And one of those steps is 
the performance of a CT scan. So the same CT scanner you see in a hospital, we put the body through the scanner and that can tell us or answer questions sometimes in the negative. Did that person have a, a head injury that we can't see from the outside? Um, or sometimes the CT scan can actually give us a reasonable cause of death. We can see evidence of hemorrhage, let's say, in the abdomen, or we can find so where the no bullet is. So there's no need for anything further? Correct. Right. Okay. Well, well, and we well actually, it's a complicated process, but we, we, um, as part of that preliminary examination process, we get information from, let's say, the hospital or the general practice, so we know a bit about this person's past medical history, and then we uh, do the CT scan, so we look at the scan, and then we... Um, do other tests like overnight toxicology so we can examine for about 300 drugs I think these days overnight and so we've got a lot of information um, and then the coroner has a very important job to do uh, really distilled down to three elements which is the cause of death and the identity of the person and the circumstances of the death so we need to be able to advise the coroner on each of those issues um, and if we say to the coroner look we think look, I think I can give you a course of death and I don't think an autopsy is necessary. Well, the coroner is the person that determines ultimately whether or not an autopsy is done, uh, but on our advice normally. Yeah. And so we would then get back to the families and say, look, your loved one is in our care. Uh, we've had a look and we've considered the circumstances and we think an autopsy is or isn't necessary. And if the These are the reasons why? Uh, yes, and if the family has a particular view on that, then that's taken into account as well. Give us a rough idea of the numbers. How many people die? How many people get referred? How many people have autopsies? Do you know off the top of your head? Well, I could have a go at those figures. I think um, in Victoria, we're hitting a population, I think, around about 6 million now and about 39,000 deaths per year. And of those, about 6,500 get referred to the coroner. Wow. And of those, about less than 50% get an autopsy. So pretty well every, say, work death, injury at work, which is trauma, every trauma death would be referred to you, wouldn't it? Correct, correct. So, so not just road accidents, but any, uh, so, so criminal trauma, you know, someone bashes someone else and they die, the one punch type trauma, or any sort of trauma, plus road accidents, plus work injuries. Yes, all the cases uh, you hear on the radio. Falling off the ladder at home and yes. dying. Yes, absolutely. Off to the coroner. So suicides, all suicides, I yes. assume. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, and, and small babies, of course, who die unexpectedly as well. Yes, and often the cause isn't known, so that's another during, reason. During yes. birth, yeah. One of the things that fascinates me, and I've, I've known Noel for many years, so uh, and this is, amazes me, that you guys still sometimes go out to the site, don't you? Yeah, we go, I got we that go right? to, we so go to scenes. Murder, if there's a murder, you'll go to the scene. Yes, not all scenes, uh, but uh, normally we'll be contacted by the police who will have contacted the coroner's office or the coronial admissions and inquiries office, letting them know that there's a, a death that re and they require our attendance. And the reasons for us going to a scene uh, from their perspective are often they'd like an extra set of eyes to give them an opinion about even critical issues like is this a suspicious death or not or is it, let's say there's a scene where there's lots of blood, is that blood the result of a natural disease process like someone's esophageal varices, if they've got cirrhosis, for instance, um, bleeding torrentially and causing the death or is th there something more sinister going on? Um, also, sometimes timing of death is an issue and it's not nearly as precise as the TV programs would lead you to believe, but we can do things at a scene that um, help us uh, in certain circumstances, refine the time frame within which death might have occurred. And so, and that's taking a temperature. Um, and also I find personally with scenes that once you've been to a scene, it's like a moment frozen in time. You, you walk into a scene, if it's in a house, you can see half-eaten breakfast, for instance, people's calendars. But everything's their, their, stopped, Everything it? is stopped, absolutely. Yeah. And um, 
and uh, and you never really forget it. So that when you go into court, and sometimes the court cases might be several years down the track, I've never forgotten the scenes that I've been to. Do you think it's affected you? You know, this whole idea of received trauma. Do you think there's a lot of talk now, particularly even among the plaintiff law firms, of young lawyers getting you know received trauma from dealing with this stuff every day? Do you, are you aware of that with your staff, for example? We're conscious of it, and I think that um, there's particular dangers with uh, you know a lot of deaths uh, within a short uh, space of time. So, for instance, we were very conscious of it at the time of the bush, bushfires when yep. we had like 100, 173 people died, um, and when we send people overseas on deployment to scenes of mass disaster, like Christchurch or Bali after the bombings. Yeah. Um, and you manage that by being um, very attuned to people's psychological needs. So, you know, scheduling breaks, um, giving debriefing sessions, you know, at the bushfires. Also not overworking people so that um, although there's a lot of pressure on you to get identities made and bodies returned to families and this has to be done in a stepwise process, no one's going to thank you for misidentifying a, a person. And so um, every every evening when we downed tools at the time of the bushfires, it was a, a debriefing session at a cafe around the corner and it gave me, I was the head of pathology then, gave me a chance to just take the psychological temperature, if you like, of, of everybody and see how they were coping. How do you, you know, that would strikes me as a really difficult thing because there's not a lot of forensic pathologists around, you know, and you're the only institute here in Victoria that can do it, obviously. So when you go from an average of whatever 6,000 a year is, you know, we're talking, I don't know, we're not talking huge numbers each week. How do you then scale up quick enough to deal with 180 bodies in something like the bushfires? Well, we prepare for these sorts of things. So we undergo exercises where we, we practice, they're desktop exercises. Um, and also we prepare by assisting people interstate and overseas at scenes of mass disasters. So they come here, you, you get people here. We, and, and vice versa, and vice versa. So what we learn overseas, we apply here and vice versa. Wow. This is Ritz and Cures. My name is Lindy Burns, Bill O'Shea, and Associate Professor Steve Allen. I'm never going to use that term again, but now I am. Uh, no, I've dumped the associate. Oh, you're, you're just a professor now. That's I got rid of it. Totally tedious. I said it was too much ink on my car. <laughs> Bill O'Shea and Professor Steve Allen are here as my co-hosts in their regular roles. And our special guest is Professor Noel Woodford from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, where he is the director. Um, there's lots of things to talk about. And uh, we'd like you to be a part of it. You can text on 0437-774-774. Now, could you tell us, um, you know, I worked at the Alfred for a long time, 12 years or whatever it was, and um, we had a lot of transplant work going on, as does the Austin with livers. But the the sort of Cinderella of it all was um, tissue transplantation and tissue donation. Now, you've got a tissue bank. Now, I just wonder how many people listening today have ever heard of the tissue bank and how does it work as opposed to organ donation? Well, uh, look, yes, not many people, I think, know about tissue donation. It doesn't have the profile of organ donation. Uh, we have a, a donor tissue bank of Victoria situated on our campus. It's part of the Institute's operations. Um, it's in our act uh, that we can provide tissue banking services. And so really it gives people uh, the opportunity to, on behalf of their deceased next of kin, donate um, skin, tendons, heart valves, bone, corneas. Uh, and corneas. Well, that, that tends to be done by the Lion's Eye Bank. Oh, but right. um, but uh, the corneas are harvested at our place. So, um, or in hospital, but, um, yeah, so it doesn't have the profile of organ donation, but 
it um, it can, in certain circumstances, be life-saving transplantation. So, so skin, for instance, skin would be... Well, I know at the Alfred, uh, yep. you know, skin is really the, the um, medium par excellence for the treatment of infected burns. And so we take very thin layers of skin from... Uh, deceased persons uh, with the consent of the next of kin and to transplant those. So, and also, so that's not taken on an as-needed basis. That's taken as you collect it on anyone who consents prior to death and the family agree, and then you store up well, skin. Well, after death, after death, we but take it. But the consent comes prior to Yes. And then once we talk they to die, the next of kin about yep. that, yes. Right. Wow. And you st- how long can you store skin for? Oh, five years. Is that right? Yes. It's, it's so, for example, with Black Saturday, there must have been a huge demand for skin. Uh, there was a massive demand. Victims. In fact, uh, we ran out. So, so I guess um, you know my my message out there would be, you know, this is a wonderful gift. It's it's tremendous. I'd like to talk about Leaf Day in a second because we once a year we have a um, really it's a celebration where where recipients and donor families get together at the institute and and really celebrate this wonderful gift mm. that's that's um that's I, happened. So I really remember any we get them together. We get them the together. donors and the recipients. Correct. Because mm. they don't allow that for organs. Well, the donor families. Yeah. Right. Mm. I don't remember any call for skin donations at the time of Black Saturday, though. You hear of sometimes calls for blood donation, but the fact that, you know, you need those things in a disaster like Black Saturday. But remember, they're deceased. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Can yeah. people, like, I yeah, can't go for, in whilst I'm alive and donate skin, I'm assuming? No, and, and it takes some time. Be, yeah, you can a register, though, can't you, as a donor? Yes, you can, you can. So when you uh, register as an organ donor, you can also register as a tissue donor. Um, but that's a separate registration? Uh, no, I think it's all part of the one okay. thing. You can go to the Donate Life website and, um, and do it there. Make that uh, adjustment if you need. A text from Susan. My 95-year-old grandmother died within 48 hours of a fall, and her funeral was delayed because she was sent to the coroner's court for an autopsy. Was Noel saying at all that the family could have declined this, what ended up being a traumatic process, or did they get no say? No, the families have a say. It's not necessarily determinative, though. So we'll get back to families and say to them, the coroner has decided that an autopsy is or isn't necessary. Are you happy with that? Some families want an autopsy because uh, they want the death investigated further. Just just on cases like that, and I don't know the particulars no. of the case. So, you know, one one thing we are doing of recent times is trying to make the process more efficient. You know, there's a significant as the population ages, fractured hips are becoming common and they're traumatic deaths, so they tend have referred to the coroner's office. Uh, but uh, we're realising that you know not much is not known about these cases. So what's the what's the um, benefit in having them go through this process? So we're we're looking at more efficient ways of actually dealing with. Uh, fractured hips in elderly people, which can be up to 10% of our workload. Right. Well, that's interesting, yeah. The ageing population, just the ripple effect is remarkable, Correct. isn't it? Just on the topic of that text, do you have the capacity to provide support to families who are distressed through the process? Yeah, we don't We don't offer, and we're not set up to deliver formal grief counselling, but um, we our, star, our coronial admissions and inquiries office, so the front end of the process, if you like, is staffed by nurses um, who have significant experience in intensive care medicine and emergency medicine. So they're used to dealing with families in, in traumatic and stressful situations. And um, we, we've medicalised the front end of the process, if you like. So these people are very used to talking to families about medical issues and, and, and that's the bulk of the work that comes through the, the Coronial Admissions and Inquiries Office. Can you tell me a bit, Noel, about what, what you think was the most important piece of 
training that you got to prepare yourself for this job, which as Bill was saying before, and not just for you, but, but others who, who work with you, as Bill was saying before, that you know, for, for a layperson to, to hear what you do, it, it, would, it just seems I'm kind of incredulous really about how you can do that without feeling uh, uh, um, some kind of emotion, taking an emotional toll being taken each day. So what was the best preparation for you to be able to care for people as you know, their families would want you to, but at the same time to be able to do the professional job you're required to do? I think it's, it's clinical dispassion, really. I mean, it's not that I would, or any pathologist or any doctor really is just plonked into the middle of their job. It's a process of, of learning that starts as a medical student and progresses through your clinical years. I didn't do this job to avoid seeing patients. You know, I actually quite liked my job. I was going to be a surgeon at one stage and then saw the light and ch- um, changed. But... Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, what really helps you cope is that, particularly in this job, it's a problem-solving job and you're there to do a job and you're really, and your patients are now vicarious patients. They're the next of kin and, you know, you're, you're helping find answers for people and I find that, you know, so the fulfilling nature of the job really helps you cope with any of the, the more confronting elements. E- even job. children and babies? Yes, yeah, so I, look, I, you know, people ask me what, what are the, the hardest cases and I think, you know, young people, particularly traumatic deaths in young people, when you see a life unfulfilled, that's that's really mm-hmm. tragic. But I'm also touched by um, deaths that occur in the um, the workplace. You know, people go off to work, mm-hmm. fully expecting to go home, and something ha- terrible happens, and they all of a sudden, you know, their family are left without a, a breadwinner or mm-hmm. a father or a mother, and um, you know, those those deaths I, I, I'm touched by. The other um, audience you have, apart from the next of kin, mm-hmm. is. We mentioned at the start the justice system, but also accident prevention. For, like, the reason we have seatbelts in cars now would have been, I would imagine, due to a lot of inquests in the 50s and 60s of victims of car, car accidents who died because they were thrown from the vehicle or went through the windscreen for lack of a seatbelt. Now, you have that role too, don't you, in assisting the coroner with recommendations. You can, you can tell what the injuries been caused, what you know, what, what's called the injury, and the coroner can then make recommendations. Isn't that the way the system works? Yeah, so we assist the coroner in the performance of their duties, and one of the um, elements of a, a coroner's job is the um, is to produce some findings, and sometimes those findings go towards prevention. If you were to summarise what we do, or the most important element of what we do, I guess it is injury and death prevention, prevention of similar sorts of deaths. So, you know, the coroner's court of Victoria have produced findings in the past that have resulted in people wearing life jackets, for instance, yeah. or watercraft, or... Um, uh, there were faulty, uh, I think, heaters. This was back in the 80s, and Graham Johnson was the coroner, made a yep. finding um, banning those. So We get coroner's mm. communiques, whatever they're called, at the hospitals oh, all the time. So we get these basically, you know, these uh, basically a, a memo from the coroner saying, this is an issue, fix it up. And there's quite a few of them. They seem to come out all the time around specific deaths, but also around clusters. Like the coroner might choose to investigate, you know, five similar deaths at the same time and Mm. then put out some recommendations to the hospitals about how we can improve systems to uh, prevent these sorts of things happening as frequently. Well, one current one is accidental overdose of medication. That's right. And there were findings produced by a coroner and um, that's led to the Safe Injecting Room project in North Richmond. And research work that we've done on opiate-related deaths has uh, resulted in codeine being now a Schedule 8 drug, so, you know, saving lives by making these drugs more difficult to get. Mm. This is an odd question, and I've not asked any of the guests on Ritz and Cures this question ever, but I'm going to ask you. Do you believe in an afterlife? 
Jeez. <laughs> and he's a good one. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm a, I'm a healthy agnostic. It's, but, um, it's the work that you do. I've, I asked my mother mm. this question once. Mum worked in gerontology for a really long time mm. as, as, a, as a nurse, and she said that it, that, that work changed her view of, of, of the existence of a form of spiritual life. I won't go into the, what she ended up deciding, but did it, does, it, does, it, does it brought about a questioning of a belief you might have had before? Has that changed that belief, or is that something that you just completely put to the side in that dispassionate way that you were talking about before? No, I think I put it to one side, I have to say. That, you know, I've got a job to do every day. I enjoy that job. Um, uh, you know, I... I the empathetic side of me looks at people who die before their time and, and um, you know, I do feel a sense of sadness at what happens, but I know that nobody's going to thank me for that down the track. You know, my job is there to answer questions for the next of kin, provide information for the courts where necessary. So you, um, you meet with the families? Uh, we do, not not frequently, but we do. We have a family health service there, so um, families might ring up and uh, there's a number of ways we follow up on cases. So it might well be that families want, elements of the the, uh, the autopsy report explained, so we're happy to do that. Sometimes that's facilitated through their general practitioner, so we'll send the report to the GP and the GP will meet with the family. On occasions where we don't find a cause of death but we suspect that there might be a genetic element to the, to the death, uh, we'll get the family in and then facilitate a process of referral to either the Children's Hospital Murdoch Institute or the Royal Melbourne Hospital Cardiology Department. And, and, you know, and that's another preventive element of the work. So the classic case would be the young person who collapses on the football field and we don't find a cause of death at autopsy and we dig a bit deeper and we, we find what we think is a genetic contribution to the death, a so-called channelopathy, which makes the heart go into a funny rhythm. Now, that can have significant implications for surviving next of kin, for brothers, sisters, so, well, children. you find that? You're, you've got the capacity to detect that? Uh, yes, we, we can do the genetic analysis, but we also refer these families to hospitals where a more in-depth analysis is performed. It's funny, though, because, you know, the question that you asked, Lindy, does touch on what we were talking about previously, you know, sense of denial and how strong it is. You know, I, I see the same in people who say work in childhood cancer. You know, I wonder how. And I know I had calls once to visit the coroner's, the um, Institute of Forensic Medicine years ago, and I walked in there in the space of an hour, I was there for a meeting, you know, I'd had to go through bits and I'd seen about, I don't know how many, about 20 dead bodies, 30 dead bodies. And, you know, it struck me, you know, everyone there just seemed to be going about their business like, you know, sh like they were just working in a bank. With great and respect as well. Yeah, with though. enormous respect. Oh, don't get me wrong. But, but there's no every, emotion. And you see the no. same in all places yeah, of hospitals. And it true. must be the same. Ambulance drivers, yeah. police who turn up the things. Yeah, it, it amazes, you know, and your ability to answer the question and then immediately flick into, you know, the clinical sort of stuff. It's, you know, you've been doing it every day of your life for 40, 30 years or whatever it is now, 20, 30 years. He's the same age as you. Have you solved them? Have you ever found a clue that uh, the cops have missed and you've solved it? Yes, I have, but I, don't, I won't go into the details. Mm. But yeah, once or twice. I think all pathologists have. That's part of what we do. The police are behind glass if there's a suspicious death and... It's your job. That's, That's your job, job to find that stuff. Yes. Fascinating. I had about nine other questions, and there's probably three others that have been texted in that are tremendous. So come back and see us again, if that's okay, Noel. Thank yeah, you. Thank you very much for having me. Professor Noel Woodford, who's the director of the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Um, it's just a very interesting area of work, is it not? But uh, a lovely way to start uh, in terms of intellectual stimulation uh, for Ritz and Cures for 2018.